Um, well, thank you for the, the opportunity to present at this event. And what I really want to do is to um, adopt a kind of slightly polemic, critical angle on the TEF. There's been a lot written about this, um, some kind of from a teaching and learning angle, some from a more policy kind of related angle. And I think those two kind of come together in many ways. And I want to kind of share some, to bring together some of that kind of critical insight really into how we might approach this um, policy agenda and how we might go forward in thinking kind of more creatively about um, what we might need to do to to take it take it that next step further. So really, the the outline of this is to is to firstly provide some kind of background to the the TEF, the policy context, and that is very much linked to what a lot of critical academics see as the kind of marketization project in higher education, um, the move towards stronger market competition within the sector. And I think the TEF is kind of very much bound up in that in many ways. Um, and I think that the criticism of the TEF really is that whilst the, the intention might be perfectly legitimate um, and acceptable, the means by which we get towards teaching excellence through the TEF might be more problematic. And I think that needs to, to kind of be unpicked. So I want to look at some of those critical angles, particularly um, around uh, measurability and metrics around teaching um, excellence. Because my argument, and a lot of people's arguments, is that they've become kind of almost proxy measures rather than kind of genuine measures. And I'm sure those who are involved more actively in teaching and learning might have kind of a particular view on that also. Um, and then I'm going to draw upon some of the critical research I did with Jürgen Enders and Rajni Naidu at Bath, which is kind of taking a kind of policy framing approach using some of the theoretical lens of Bourdieu, uh, particularly his kind of understanding of how higher education systems have become reconfigured. And then I want to put forward some ways for ways ways in which we can approach this. And really the, the, the kind of three main themes really in this are around student consumerism, employability and, and rankings, the measured market. They seem to me to be three very dominant um, motifs in the, the TEF framework. And I think it's kind of etched sometimes very explicitly, sometimes subliminally, in the, the green and the white papers that form the basis of the TEF. Um, so if we look at the, the actual overarching framework when it was conceived um, around about five years ago, we can see that one of the kind of official aims was to, was to kind of create this better parity between uh, teaching and research. Um, the, Assumption being, of course, that research tends to be the winner in this and attracts more of the funding and that if we're going to introduce fees, higher fees, we have to enhance teaching. There's a subtext that uh, teachers in higher education are not that effective, that we're not as effective as maybe school teachers and that we need to improve uh, on that, uh, even though the evidence is quite questionable for that. Um, there is that kind of subtext that teaching is the plurilation of tech, of, of research. 
Um, and I think another kind of theme that runs through this is the whole idea of accountability and value for money. Um, and, and value for money, I think, has become increasingly synonymous with a very kind of economically instrumentalist notion of the value of higher education, um, namely the value of returns that it generates in the labour market, rather than any other kind of more intrinsic notion of value. Um, and that has become reinforced, I think, over the last sort of six or seven years since the higher fee rate. Um, so it's about managing expectations in a kind of increased sort of market environment. I think if we look at some of the, the kind of the themes around marketization, they, they can be kind of encapsulated in a number of key areas. Um, one is that, you know, higher education is a shared investment and a shared risk between multiple stakeholders. Um, and the state alone cannot finance this through public expenditure, particularly when the main recipients of the of that that experience are um, getting it for free. Essentially, that's the kind of the rhetoric which drives this. And um, so, in a sense, you introduce kind of more market competition as a way of ramping up quality. Um, where kind of power shifts, if you like, away from the provider to the purchaser, um, who kind of controls more actively service conditions and expectations. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that um, there's been more in the way of um, market information through league tables and key information sets about what higher education offers that is then meant to inform student choice and um, kind of leverage better competition between providers. But in some ways, um, higher education doesn't operate like a true market, still funded largely by the state, um, and unfettered kind of market competition rules don't necessarily kind of characterize it. But there are kind of wider sets of con consequences around this, particularly around developing a kind of more stratified, internally differentiated system. And I think one of the consequences of a kind of more market-driven system is that higher education is reframed as a private good. Um, and the kind of wider societal contribution it might make becomes kind of diminished. Um, one of the other issues, of course, in this kind of brave new world is that uh, the stakes for developing kind of reputational capital are very high and the market profiling um, and reputation management very much kind of come to symptomize um, how higher education institutions image themselves. Um, and of course, the evidence of the use of kind of spurious marketing information that the um, that the standards, marketing standards agency flagged up last year about everybody claiming to be in the top 1% of everything um, becomes a kind of symptom of that kind of uh, urge towards kind of, um, kind of reputation enhancement. And um, the kind of the joke as well that you might say is if you want to be in the top 10% or the top 20% or top 20 of something, who is going to give way to you in that situation? Because everybody's kind of competing for the same kind of goal. Um, and I think the idea that um, student choice is driven by information symmetry and um, kind of rational choice 
um, is only true to a certain extent that choice is very contingent on lots of other factors, including um, a student being pretty tied to a local market or provider, um, where they can get in, um, what the kind of ratio of supply and demand of places is like and so forth. So I think we need to be a bit questionable about the extent to which kind of students decode kind of cold knowledge in the form of league tables, assimilate that and then uh, it informs their choice as rational market actors. I think a lot of the research has kind of brought that into some kind of critical judgment. Um, so we can see some of the um, common themes running through the kind of TEF narrative. Um, and this whole kind of subtext, the competition between providers in any market environment incentivizes them to raise their game and offer consumer consumers greater choice. Um, and there's a kind of behavioral response to this. Uh, teaching excellence equates then with kind of maybe potentially higher fees, although um, the the latest thinking, of course, following the Ogre, Ogre review, is that you know fees should perhaps be a less price rather than what they are at the moment. Um, and of course, um, this kind of has almost like a sort of zero-sum game kind of logic, isn't it? That you know one's kind of position in the kind of rankings is to the detriment of someone else's. Uh, not everybody is going to sort of benefit mutually in, in that kind of uh, environment. Right, so one of the kind of main criticisms I think of the TEF, which some of you might share and others may not, is that the, the metrics for determining teaching quality are not particularly valid. Um, that much of the metrics are actually kind of surrogate measures of, of excellent teaching. Um, and I would say that they don't really depict any kind of finer grain notion of pedagogy, teaching and learning, what goes on at the actual front line beyond kind of outcomes. So it's a sort of conflation, if you like, of kind of outcome and process. And um, one of the other problems about that is kind of disaggregating the data in meaningful ways. We know that at a sort of discipline level alone, there are six different kind of units within, say, a social science uh, program. And we, we all know that they all get mixed together. And how do you actually pick that apart? Um, small cohorts, for example. Most people who work with small cohorts know that data can fluctuate very drastically in the space of one year on the basis of one or two less happy customers. So these kind of things um, are often um, kind of missing as well. I would say that, you know, the KISS, for example, doesn't provide any kind of clear sense of kind of course level pedagogy and student experience in the classroom beyond things like contact hours, which then again become another sort of proxy for teaching excellence. Um, destination of leavers for higher education um, as a marker of teaching quality, I mean, I'll explore this in relation to the discourse of employability, is also problematic because it tends to kind of uh, focus on rather short-term outcomes rather than longer-term career trajectories. And how can you actually sort of determine whether something is an excellent experience at the point of actually experiencing that with something kind of later 
down the line. Um, and I think that NSS is clearly also problematic because it tends to conflate satisfaction with quality. And sometimes that's not a clear relationship. Sometimes that can be in an inverse relationship. Uh, satisfaction can be derived from fulfilling goals that, um, that are outside of pedagogic and academic ones and relate to wider service experiences. So I think all of these issues that are meant to reflect what our education institution offers are also contingent upon lots of other variables that work outside of the immediate higher education experience. So I think that needs to be kind of um, considered as well with, with that. I would say that what's problematic in the, the way in which the TEF was kind of set up is that I think institutional quality becomes conflated with satisficing uh, outcomes and that is one of the, the main kind of criticisms of that. And I think we have these surrogate measures, proxy measures of teaching excellence rather than actually proper kind of um, assessment of, of what it does. So um, there's little definition and perhaps people can um, query that or put alternative kind of uh, understandings of teaching excellence in the white paper and the green paper on what an excellent teacher is beyond hyperbolic rhetoric utterances like a good teacher can inspire or they can encourage the student to learn more about the subject. Sort of hyperbolic um, tautologies tend to sort of underpin a lot of the, the narrative of excellent teaching in the white paper uh, that was the, the, the prelude to the TEF. There's very little discourse um, on developing teachers as reflective practitioners who themselves might be on a professional journey. Um, much of it is based on a sort of reactive, short-term notion of what an effective teacher is. Um, I noted very little is said about the meaningful balance between teaching and research, including um, kind of evidence how you might enhance research-led teaching. Um, there's little discussion about the importance of interprofessional communities whereby good, effective, excellent teaching might be a collaborative exchange between professional communities who are feeding off each other. It's a very individualistic sort of notion of what an excellent teacher might be. Um, and of course, then the whole notion of rhetoric, of, um, of excellence, becomes a kind of almost kind of rhetorical sort of tool, isn't it? Um, and uh, the notion that it might be relative. Uh, not everyone might be excellent at teaching, but they could be on that journey towards improving and making a difference in a way that isn't so kind of immediate as the kind of the, the notion of excellence might be. And then once things become, ex everything becomes excellent, the criteria changes, it then becomes standard. Um, so I think these are kind of problems that are, um, characterize the, the thinking about the valid metrics. Um, right, so the kind of approach that we took was more of a sort of sociological one, and it was um, it going back to the earlier discussion by which I started this kind of talk, which was really to look at the relationships between TEF and the wider kind of almost macro-level policy context of marketization and massification. Um, and we, we just decided um, with, with, this is with uh, Jürgen and Rajani, really to develop a kind of like critique of the, 
the TEF, which looked at in terms of kind of more the way it affects institutional kind of dynamics and behaviors and the way in which the kind of the text, the policy text and the way they're framed try to encourage or try to position key stakeholders in higher education, namely students and academics and senior managers, as, uh, as economic agents. Um, and in a sense, the, the, the way in which people like Bourdieu talk about higher education is it operates as a sort of field of practice, with a set of logics of practice. Um, and that um, in fields, particularly competitive fields, people are seeking recognition, rewards, and forms of capital that give them an advantage within that particular field. And fields are both competitive within and between. So within an institution there is competition, but particularly between um, fields as well. And that the field of higher education is not, doesn't exist independently from other fields, particularly in the economic and political sphere, that have started to kind of weave an influence in terms of what the institution should look like, how it should be modelled, how people within that field should be acting. Um, and symbolic violence is a key kind of issue here in terms of the way in which soft power works um, um, through, not through overt force, but through um, reclassifying thought, practice and behaviour within a particular field um, and through kind of an act of sort of persuasion that tries to get people to think of themselves in a particular way, namely as, a, as either a consumer or a market agent or a future employee or someone who's kind of uh, involved in a sort of performative um, kind of pursuit um, to gain a sort of positional advantage within that field. So that was the kind of um, the, the framing to this. And we were looking at particularly the white paper and the, the, the preceding green paper. Uh, and the reason I think these are important texts is because they serve as a kind of very significant framing device for much of what kind of followed in the, the 2017 uh, Act or that introduced the, the, the TEF. And texts not only include policy, but also sort of media um, uh, ideas as well. And the interesting thing here is that policy texts or framing discourses help establish dominant categorizations of thought, practices, and institutional behavior, and represent these as kind of central to the marketization project. So two of the main ones I'll be looking at over the next 10 minutes are kind of consumerism and employability. Um, and so one of the important things with kind of policy text is that it tends to be very selective in terms of the evidence by which it draws on, and it tends to sort of flag up sort of salient kind of challenges and frame those in a way that kind of calls for the need for change. So the main ways in which it does this really is through firstly um, creating a problem frame, so problematizing existing provision. So if you were to look at the white paper and the green paper, a lot of it is talking about kind of the alleged failures of the system, um, about outmoded practice, about unaccountability. Um, and this also tends to elide other realities, for example, good practices historical positive outcomes that an institution might, uh, that might provide, um, the 
past success, good practice, all these kind of things tend to be sort of uh, silenced. And the, the subtext is of a system really not fit for purpose. Um, that is what you get a lot of, um, even though public rhetoric tends to contradict that. So the very first sentence of the Green Paper was that we have world-class institutions um, that are world-leading, that have produced great students, great researchers, and then why not stop at that? Instead, what you get then is a whole sort of diatribe against um, what higher education is doing. So then you have the kind of issue, really, of the way in which these causes, uh, the causes of systems failure, are attributed. And words like incumbent are quite interesting to describe higher education um, providers that kind of sort of denote a sort of honorific sort of status and a sort of lazy fairness that might have characterized the system 50 years ago, but uh, is less of a kind of reality now. Um, and there's lots of uh, terms like, um, like, you know, unaccounted kind of autonomy, professional interests being served rather than the needs of, of the market. Uh, moral judgments seem to be a kind of feature of that as well, where there's lots of kind of evaluative framing of the role, responsibility, and responsiveness of actors, of, of professionals. Um, for example, having a duty to care, duty of care to students and minimizing opportunity costs, that kind of thing. Um, there's a sort of moralizing th uh, frame about what higher education really should be doing to wider society and economy. And the solution then is the innovative evaluation tool, um, otherwise known as the teaching excellence framework. So really, these kind of um, sort of processes are very much central to how you might engage with sort of policy sort of framing kind of, um, of, of, of a dominant kind of policy like the, like the TEF. Right, so just a few examples of um, framing um, in, the, in the white paper. And um, forgive me for being a little bit facetious with some of these, but I couldn't kind of resist. Um, so there's lots of talks about a kind of deficit narrative and underperformance, and that universities aren't under pressure to differentiate themselves. And I would argue they have been for the last 30 years. Um, so that's not necessarily true. You can see in the first sort of sentence, or the first uh, quote there, that even the student is pathologized as a kind of poor chooser. And then by default, the, the provider is um, problematized for not market, marketing themselves. Um, that, so that's a kind of interesting issue. We have a lot of the stuff about kind of delivery uh, modes and unemployable, unemployability or employability and skills deficits. And yet there's no real consensus uh, still um, in the literature about the extent and prevalence of skills deficits that employers want. Um, uh, the counter argument really is that there's an overshoot of graduates and most graduates for top level jobs are, are uh, competing against, you know, 70 other applicants. So employers, what a sort of more mass system of higher education has done is allow employers to change the rules of recruitment and the signaling kind of information they use to select who they want to uh, be in their organization. Um, and I think that my favorite is that thousands of life opportunities have been wasted because of a bad lecture. Again, it's individualizing, pathologizing, but it's creating a very kind of infantile idea of the, the student. I mean, most of us, you know, 
particularly some of us who in, went to university in the Jurassic days of the 1990s, remember particularly bad lecturers. But I didn't sit there thinking my life is being wasted. In fact, it probably sort of provoked me into taking sort of preventative measures from my life being wasted, like going to the library. And likewise, the heroic kind of lecturer who we all like to, you know, brought the subject to life and then talked about themselves for the next 20 minutes didn't actually emancipate me in any particular way. They just kind of helped bring the subject to life and created a sort of, you know, a good experience. But this idea of what the lecturer can and can't do in a 45-minute period is just a little bit um, problematic, I would say. Um, so one of the, the dominant kind of frames um, running through this is the student-consumer kind of argument. And I think if you read the, the white paper, and if you read certainly the Brown Review, it's, it's more tempered than the Brown Review sort of four years earlier, um, there is lots of kind of framings of a student as a consumer. Um, and one of the problems with this is that we have to question how sustainable that is as a, as a notion of creating a kind of idea of a learner that we want to take something from higher education. That what the student-consumer uh, notion has always done is uh, depict a sort of transactional relationship between institutions um, and a similar way to which they might experience other common kind of market experiences. Um, but the question is, have all students taken up this identity? Um, I would say that it's become more prevalent, but it isn't a kind of all-encompassing reality. So do you want to keep reframing the, um, the student as a consumer? I mean, one of the issues is that well, compared to any other kind of uh, commercial experience, I mean, the, the benefits are also kind of post-experience. Um, and that can kind of can cancel out any immediate benefit if it's not... Um, advantageous to the job market, for example. Um, and I think that, you know, when we equate kind of the student as a consumer compared to the student as a learner, we understand that learning isn't a kind of perishable, transient experience like a pair of shoes are, for example. Um, I know these are kind of crude analogies, but I think that's one of the ways in which you might look at it. And any kind of learning involves rigor, independence, and some degree of pain whether that's kind of riding a bike, learning a language, or studying the history of art. Um, so um, the interesting thing is that, you know, is a kind of what a lot of the research in this area, including some of the stuff I've done, has suggested that, you know, there is a sort of relationship between sort of a learning disposition and consumerism, and it isn't necessarily conducive for um, high-quality learning, and in, in many ways the student actually achieves less if they identify more actively with the student. And why is that? Because they're engaging upon passive learning. They're expecting the provider to do all the work, that kind of stuff. And, you know, we talk a lot about resilience these days, you know, about resilient future employees. And I think once that term evokes kind of self-responsibility, I think, you know, this kind of strain towards narcissism that student-consumer implies um, is not a kind of helpful tool to deal with the reality shocks of um, a challenging graduate labour market. So, in a sense, um, here are some examples of frames, I think, which have really kind of depicted the student-consumer in a kind of competitive market environment uh, quite a lot. 
And um, one of the kind of interesting things in the, 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 the white paper particularly is the talking of new providers. So new providers who don't have particularly any experience of working in the sector, leveraging up quality, which I actually find quite staggering in many ways. I mean, a lot of new providers haven't actually, might be doing a good job, but how can you actually make that equation between being a new provider and providing higher quality than an institution that has been around for 50 years? Um, um, and when people talk about value for money, this is a kind of big kind of idea. Um, are we really talking about value for time? Um, that people can rationalize how much each unit of their learning costs. You know, this, this seminar cost me £500, or this set lecture cost me X amount. Um, but is it really just value for time that is being kind of, whether the lecture or the, the, um, the seminar is actually worthwhile, rather than simply being a kind of cost exchange? Um, and I think these days, you know, students actually have perhaps the lab's less choice about whether they want to attend or not a session, you know, because we have compulsory attendance. And, um, and most of us will have heard expressions that we all loathe, like, uh, I'm paying th for this, so I can choose or not where I want to go to that lecture, which of course is antithetical to the idea of kind of, of learning. But actually, they, 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 what, what is a sort of subtext there is the kind of right to elect in and out of learning as they kind of choose. So um, there are just some thoughts on the problematic frame of the student consumer. What am I doing for time? Probably racing away. All right, okay. So quickly then, um, I think another theme is um, employability, which I think in the, the TEF is very hollowed out. Um, it puts a lot of emphasis on supply side um, of the labour market rather than actually what's going on in employer organisations. Um, and a lot of um, what comes out of um, employ uh, employable outcomes might have nothing actually to do with sort of teaching and learning this kind of magic bullet um, idea. And, you know, the, the homo economicus narrative uh, prevails strongly, I think, in the whole idea of economic... Um, wider developmental value. Employers are an omnipotent voice in the TEF, uh, in the white paper, as they are in the Oguru, but they tend to be quite ambiguous, really, what their kind of role in this is. Um, so, and this is kind of an interesting kind of table I, I saw from Gibbs's work that is about the relationship between uh, employability and um, NSS rank, um, that they have very, you know, in many ways they have very little to do with each other. Um, that in some ways um, uh, the dynamics involved in good teaching are not all the same that help students in future employment. Um, and that um, you can see some of the highest on employability actually have quite low NSS ranks. Well, one of the kind of the, the processes there, of course, is that some employer sectors have a prevalence for employing traditional graduates who sometimes occupy the most um, prestigious um, institutions. Um, I won't talk about that. I will say that, just to wrap up, um, I would say that um, we need to be pragmatic in this uh, in policy environment, and those who are actually working with the tech uh, will have kind of first-hand experiences of the challenges of putting together a TEF narrative, evidencing a good experience. So we have to adapt, and there is certainly room for innovation. 
But I think that innovation can work outside of a sort of pan-national policy framework that is based on comparability, where you, you can't compare like for life in a very segmented market that is serving different types of students and audiences and stakeholders in a different kind of way. And I would say that, you know, if we look at metrics, um, if we're going to go down the metrics route, we have to look at those which um, engage with the wider value of higher education beyond simply kind of employment. And if we're going to use employability metrics, we have to look at issues such as uh, what is valuable, purposeful employment and how has higher education actually contributed towards that. Um, and I think the whole kind of notion of how we engage with things like employability and measure it, if we're going to, needs to uh, quite, quite drastically change. Um, and um, I would say that really student consumer discourses need some fair degree of mitigation um, or at least reframing towards more constructive ideas of students as partners or co-producers because that then will introduce more of their of a kind of two-way sort of almost complementary kind of good idea between the student and the the um the provider okay and i probably shouldn't have ended my talk by use, calling higher education a provider i should have probably called it a university oh thank you okay. thank you very much.